All right, let's look at some of those ancient words. First Peter chapter 1. I apparently am easily distracted this morning, so hopefully I will not be distracted anymore. Fortunately, my coughing has uh, gone into abeyance, so may that persist as well. All right. We're looking at verses 10 through 12 this morning. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not they were they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look Let's pray May the Lord grant that we may engage in contemplating the mysteries of this heavenly wisdom with an increasing devotion to His glory and to our edification. In Jesus' name, amen. We sometimes uh, joke in our family, amongst Amy and myself, of my secret life that takes place after she goes to bed since she is a morning person and I'm an evening person. And uh, one of the things that I watch is a science fiction show called The Colony. This will become apparent. Why this matters will become apparent soon. Um, it is, as I tried to explain to Jaden the other night when I was watching, uh, Earth has been colonized by aliens. And so you don't see much of the aliens. What you see is the, the humans... Uh, who the elite humans who are sort of running the colony on the behalf of the aliens. And so one of the main characters, her sister, is amongst the elite, and she has sent a tutor into the home precisely because these elite humans all participate in a different religion called the Great Day. And as this child is instructed in the great day and its teachings and everything, the mother occasionally overhears. And so a few episodes ago, the mother had questioned some of this and had pointed out that there are similarities that exist between these stories that her daughter is hearing and in the great religions from earth. So, kind of interesting. This, uh, the episode I watched the other night, she actually the girl actually mentioned this to her tutor. And so the question then becomes, how do you know which religion is right? How do you know, in that case, whether the Great Day or any of the religions that had already been here on earth are right? That's not an abstract sort of question. That is in part the question that this text was written for. Because the people that Peter writes to lived in a pluralistic society very similar to our own. And these people had to know, why should I believe this and not that, that, or that? 
why am I to believe in what I hear from Peter as opposed to what I've known all my life in their instance? But for some of you, it's what if, why should you believe that which you have believed all your life? And so that question that Peter really goes in this moment, in the very beginning of his gospel. Our big idea is that the great gospel was revealed and proclaimed by the Spirit through men. So let's start off with what this, with this idea that the Spirit bore witness to the gospel through the prophets. The Spirit bore witness to the gospel through the means of the prophets. And so Peter shifts to the origin of this great salvation he's been talking about. Remember, he mentioned the fact that they have been made alive in Christ Jesus because of his resurrection. They have been foreknown by the Father, chosen by the Father. They have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. They have now, because they have been born again, they have this incredible inheritance. And so it makes sense. Why should we believe this message? Why should we embrace these truths or embrace these things as truths? Paul did a similar thing in Galatians chapter 1. He pointed back to the fact that he received this gospel not from men, but he received it in a revelation from Christ Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. I like one of the memes that goes around right now where it has the, the old artist's rendering of Paul falling off the horse and um, alluding to the fact that, that Paul, who was going to kill Christians by his own free will, decided to become a Christian. <laughs> so sort of uh, not necessarily a winsome uh, meme, to say the least. But that's where Paul goes in Galatians to defend the origin of his gospel. It was not something he made up. It was not something he learned in a book or he heard from someone else, but he heard from the resurrected Jesus who appeared to him. In the beginning of John's first letter, John goes to the fact that he saw, he heard, and he felt you know, empiricism. He was there. And so John goes to the fact that he's an eyewitness to all of these things as Jesus' disciple. So where does Peter go? He too was an eyewitness. You would think he, like John, would bring up the fact that I was there when Jesus was transfigured on the mount. I was there and, and touched him after the resurrection. But Peter goes somewhere else. He goes to the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come to you. And so Peter does not talk about the the novelty or newness of this gospel, but rather he talks about the oldness of this gospel by pointing to the prophets of what we call the Old Testament who had prophesied about grace. Now, it's important to understand that when, when the prophets spoke, they spoke to their own time, but they also spoke to a time which was yet to come. And so let's not read this as, as though all they did was speak about this grace. They also spoke 
about their current circumstances and situations and what God was going to do in the time of the prophets. But what's important for us to note, I think, as well, is that they prophesied about the grace that was to come to you. And so one of the significant differences between Christianity and all of the other religions that you can choose from, as well as the irreligions, is the notion, the reality of grace. The cornerstone of grace, this unmerited favor that comes from God because of Jesus Christ. As some people have put it, God's riches uh, at Christ's expense is a nice little acronym for grace that sometimes is found to be very helpful. But other religions don't have this concept of grace. They have a concept of merit, earning something before God. Christianity teaches about God's mercy to sinners and a mercy in which he then begins to change those sinners. And so it is about merit, but it's the merit of Jesus, not the merit of those who are saved. So grace is one of these things that the prophets prophesied about or spoke ahead of time about. Now, if we're honest, we might go, you know, there are many people who claim to be prophets, there are many people who are viewed as prophets. What is it that sets these particular prophets apart from other prophets, such as, say, Muhammad or Nostradamus or something like that, or contemporary prophets that, uh, you know, what was it, Kilbrid? I can't remember their name. He used to have them in all the new agey uh, sections of the bookstore. Nonetheless, what sets these prophets apart is that the Spirit of Christ in them was the means by which they made these prophecies. In other words, they did not speak on their own initiative. They were not speaking as a result of their own creative imagination. But they were speaking because the Spirit of God was at work in them to reveal something about the future, not something kind of vague and confusing like Nostradamus's prophecies, but something that was relatively clear and understandable. And so this connects with what, P what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And so those Old Testament prophecies were not of the man or the person, but they were breathed out by God through that person. We see as well in 2 Peter chapter 1, okay, the second letter he writes, first chapter, he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the consistency within Peter's letters as well as his consistency with Paul. And their understanding that those Old Testament prophets spoke because of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, at work in them to produce these prophecies. 
Part of what's interesting is that Peter here says it's the Spirit of Christ. He doesn't call him in this instance the Holy Spirit. Probably the reason here is that uh, his focus is on the Spirit's ministry, the focus of which is Christ. And so I like what Packer says in his book, Knowing God, when he speaks about the Holy Spirit, who does not work to call attention to himself, but rather he's like a floodlight that shines upon Jesus. So you can see Jesus more clearly. His role was so that the church would look forward, that the Old Testament people would look forward to the Messiah and believe in Him and hope in Him, and so that we now can look back and see Jesus is the Messiah. (coughs) So His work is not to bring glory to Himself, but His work rather is to bring glory to the eternal Son who took on flesh and blood. And so the Holy Spirit worked through the prophets in part to prepare God's people, giving them promises that they were to believe in. What were the nature of these promises? Peter continues, He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's interesting. That word predicted is, is really comes from the word martyr, to bear witness. And it has that prefix that means beforehand. So what he's doing, you know, predicting sounds, I don't know, shallow. I predict who's going to win the Super Bowl. Okay? Yeah. That's really not what this is about. Bearing witness beforehand is something that is stronger than this idea of predicting the outcome of something. And so it points to the the work of the Spirit and therefore of the prophets as bearing witness, as martyrs in that sense, but doing it ahead of time, talking about what is going to happen, and in particular, talking about the sufferings, plural, as well as the subsequent glory of Jesus, the Messiah. We see John 5. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to Me. And then later in verse 46, For if you believed Moses... Which scriptures? Here identifies Moses. Okay, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, Jesus says. And so, Peter's not making this up. Peter is simply following what he learned from Jesus. Okay? Just as we read from Luke 24 where Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, meets these two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus, and uh, they're not really sure who he is. And what does he do? He explains, starting with Moses, how all the Scriptures testified about him. 
And that's fundamental to our understanding of the Old Testament, is that in various ways it testifies to Jesus. Whether it's in prophecy or promises, or whether it's in types or shadows, it all in various ways points us to Jesus. And what's significant is that it points us to a suffering Savior, which is another reason, another way in which Christianity is fundamentally different from all of the other religions. In Buddhism, it's you who suffer, that you might attain enlightenment. It's not someone who has suffered for you, that you might receive salvation. And so Christianity alone speaks of a suffering Savior. Suffering in His incarnation. Suffering in the the various opposition He experienced throughout His earthly life. Suffering that culminates in His death upon the cross as a, a sacrifice for sinners. Sufferings which were revealed in the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 22, and as we heard from Isaiah 53, that is also, that is there. But what's also in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 is the reality that this suffering one will then receive glory. He will be satisfied, as it talks about in Isaiah 53. And this follows the same pattern that we see in Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus suffers, He's obedient as a slave, even unto death and death upon a cross, but then God exalts Him to the highest place and gives Him the name that is above every name. So again, this is not just Peter's little thing, but it is the testimony of all of Scripture, and it's part of what makes Christianity unique and therefore um, presents it to us as a great salvation that we can rely upon, that we can trust in. The pattern is not just for Jesus, but we see Paul says it's also for us. For if children then heirs, he says in Romans 8, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Hey, this connects with what we've already been talking about here in 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The cross always proceeds the crown, first for Jesus and then for us, especially the audience of this letter. And so the grace that we've received in Christ is rooted in the sufferings of Christ for us that have been revealed by the prophets. And so we can trust in Christ, whose suffering and whose glory were predicted or borne witness to beforehand by the prophets. So that's the first part of this. Second part of this. Prophets and angels longed to look into this grace revealed. Okay? Uh, the prophets didn't just make these predictions. They weren't just moved by the Holy Spirit uh, to make these uh, prophecies. We see, in part, that they did not fully comprehend 
everything that they prophesied. And this is part of the heavenly nature of their prophecy, the heavenly origin. Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring into, into when and whom they were speaking about. In other words, they didn't fully grasp what they even said. There was an element of mystery in what, what they had written down that was beyond them and their capacity to understand. In Ezekiel 40, for instance, Ezekiel has this vision of a man who comes to him and says, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your, your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And so what follows in Isaiah 40, if you remember, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> is the new temple. Okay? And, and actually, as you read the rest of Ezekiel 40, it's not all that interesting. It's how many cubits is this part and how many cubits is that part, and it's just kind of like... In other words, what that text is saying to Ezekiel is, search it with all your heart because there's more going on here than the blueprints of a building. It's not about a physical building. So he was to see it. He was to hear it. He was to set his heart upon it. He is to long for this and, and study to understand what it is that God is showing him as well as then declaring it to the house of Israel. So it's not just for him, it's for others. Let's get back to 1 Peter. When Peter does this, he uses three very similar verbs. He kind of piles them up, and I think that's for emphasis. In other words, the prophets were not simply curious about what they prophesied, but they were actively investigating that which they prophesied about. They thought this was important. They thought that this was so important that it required their investment of time, their investment of energy, so that they are scrutinizing these prophecies. They're searching diligently to understand how it fits in with the rest of the Scriptures. They're examining, examining these things. They really, really wanted to know what God was saying through them. We recognize here Peter does that they were serving these future generations, but they wanted to understand how it would happen, what would actually take place, because some of it, if Christ has not come yet, doesn't make sense. Okay? It's easier to understand it because Christ has come. But I want us to remember... They lived, the prophets, often lived in faithless places. Just like 
the recipients of Peter's letter, and just like us. They lived in these faithless places, and it was these promises that helped them to live faithful lives in those faithless places. And it is those promises that are intended to help us live faithful lives in these faithless places. So, it's not just about the prophets, however, but we also read about the angels who long to look, having this idea of their, their stooping to look carefully. And, and uh, when I was a kid, um, my room moved around the house. And, and there was a period of time in which my brothers, my older brothers, shared a room together, and I had the other room upstairs to myself. And I would remember when my parents would have a dinner party. Okay? And like most kids, I wouldn't want to go to sleep. And so what I would do was sort of sneak over to the stairwell, and I'd peer. Um, I'm sure my parents must have seen me at some point, but kind of peering down to see what's going on. I was really curious to overhear the conversations that were taking place and uh, witness what was going and go, why can't I have that food? You know, my mom used to make these really good stuffed clams, you know. Why can't I have that? Why did they give me macaroni and cheese? I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but I was looking into these things from above. And that's essentially what the angels are doing. They're not benefit, they don't benefit from salvation. Okay? But they're curious about salvation because they, they love the Lord their God and they serve Him and they want to see how He benefits and brings glory to Himself through how He, he, he serves and loves and saves these human beings that are made in His image. And so they look with curiosity. Not just because they're bored, but because they're taking great delight in what God does. They're captivated by this great salvation, precisely because it reveals to an extent that they have not seen before the glory of God. And so both the angels and the prophets examined this promised salvation thoroughly. Both of them are studying it from their own perspectives with the minds that God has given them. Shall not we? who have actually received this grace, also examine this great salvation thoroughly as well. Think for a moment. Even this letter that we have, it's filled with Old Testament allusions and quotations 
Because Peter has studied the Scriptures and inquired about them, about this great salvation, meaning he studied the Old Testament to understand what Christ had come to do, and he brings the fruit of that labor and presents it to us in these two letters of his that we have. And Paul did the same thing, and Luke did the same thing, and John did the same thing. All of the authors of the New Testament did that same thing. And so it behooves us as ones who receive this salvation to grow in our understanding of this salvation. And so we should study the promises and fulfillment in Christ as the prophets and the angels did. So first, we have that idea that the Spirit bore witness to the gospel through the prophets. Secondly, that the prophets and the angels longed to look into this grace revealed. And thirdly, the Spirit proclaimed the gospel through the apostles and evangelists. The Spirit proclaimed the gospel through the apostles and evangelists. You see, the Old Testament Scriptures were received by the Jews uh, from the Holy Spirit who worked within the prophets and through the prophets. But how is it that these Gentiles have received such a great salvation? How is it that these Gentiles who lived so far away from Jerusalem have come to believe in Jesus Christ? Peter says that Christ's sufferings and glory have now been announced to you. They were reported or rehearsed to these Gentiles by somebody else. Someone has come from Jerusalem and Judea and made known to them these things. Okay? And so the apostles and the evangelists we're working not just in Asia Minor, but throughout the, that part of the known world at that time to make Christ's sufferings and glory known to all of those people so that they might believe and thereby receive this great salvation. We see something similar to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this. For what? That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, and so Paul's talking about his ministry team that's gone out. They went to Thessaloniki, uh, you know, as I heard today on, the, on NPR, Thessaloniki. Okay, um, that's, the, that's the modern city. Okay. Yes, I listen to NPR. Um, they went there and they spoke or announced, okay, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God which is at work in you believers. And so these folks here in Asia Minor are just like these people that Paul's talking about in Thessaloniki, that someone came, someone announced the gospel to them, and they received it not just as good, you know, nice news, uh, like they might, you know, hear the, uh, the various traveling salesmen proclaim about, oh yeah, so and so won this victory at this battle somewhere, and, 
uh, you know, the glories of Rome, so to speak. They heard it, they received it as the very word of God, which Paul reminds them it really is. Back to Peter. Parallel to this idea that has now been announced to you, we have by those who preached the good news to you. That word, preached the good news, is the one that we transliterate basically into evangelized. And so the announcing or the declaration, reporting or rehearsing is another way of saying evangelized. And so it's not limited to the apostles and evangelists of the New Testament times, but we see that this still happens through pastors, through evangelists, through Christian lay people who are announcing the gospel. And that's really, sometimes we, we make evangelism into something kind of mystical and strange. And really all it is is rehearsing the sufferings and glories of Jesus to people who don't know Him yet. To people who haven't heard or don't understand yet. And so laying it out and making it plain, which means we can only make it plain if we have inquired diligently into them ourselves. And sometimes the reason we're so intimidated by evangelism is because we haven't diligently inquired into them ourselves And so we're afraid they'll ask a question we can't answer. And even if they do, it's okay. God's not going to send a lightning bolt down because you can't answer a question. We do believe in grace, right? We do. And so evangelism really is about this reporting and rehearsing the facts of the gospel and their implications to other people. And that's really what we see even in Acts 2 and the the great sermon by Peter. He's just rehearsing these acts and bringing up the Old Testament scriptures that say this is not to be, this is not something we shouldn't have expected. (laughs) If we were paying attention, we would see now that it all makes sense. What's also key here is that uh, Peter says, that they evangelized or preached this good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so what we see at the beginning of Acts is they were, the, the disciples were supposed to wait in Jerusalem until the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, we read about how the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And the first thing they did, which is what they were supposed to do, is to begin to bear witness to Jesus. And that is exactly what happens in the rest of Acts 2 with Peter's famous sermon. And that's not the only place it takes place. So we see... The Spirit comes down. The Spirit is poured out upon God's people. And their response is to evangelize. And perhaps one of the reasons we don't evangelize is we're not living in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit, but we're relying upon the power of our flesh. 
Well, we recognize from Hebrews 4 that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As Kevin DeYoung has uh, sort of summarized this, the, the Word of God still speaks. It still speaks to the hearts of men and women as we speak it to them. And so we see there's actually this great circularity that takes place. The same Spirit who worked in the prophets is the one who works through those who evangelize so that people come to believe the words of the prophets and receive the grace found in Jesus Christ. And so it's all about the work of the Spirit to bring people to Jesus Christ. People are engaged and involved, and there's a responsibility that we have, but ultimately it's the work of the Holy Spirit who has been at work, is at work, and will continue to be at work to glorify Jesus in the salvation of sinners. And so we see the second element of faithful evangelism, the Spirit. As Calvin would say, as John Owen would say, Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit. They're joined together. We don't separate them. But the Spirit works through the Word. And so living faithfully in a faithless place rests upon the work of the Holy Spirit who bore witness beforehand to the sufferings and the glory of Jesus for our salvation. It was a mystery that they themselves longed to understand better. The message that we believe, in other words, comes from God Himself. And the same Holy Spirit also worked through those who announced to us the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that very same Spirit, brothers and sisters, will work in us and through us to announce the Gospel to other people so that they too can live faithful lives in a faithless place. Isn't that good news? I think it is. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, You would be at work by that Spirit. That You would be working in us to will and work in part to study the Scriptures so that we can have a deeper understanding of that grace so that we can have a deeper understanding of the pit into which we fell because of our sin, but also the depths to which Jesus has gone to rescue us. Father, help us to not just understand, but help us by the Spirit to rely upon Christ's sufferings for us. Father, may that same Spirit also work in us so that we are able to rehearse the good news of salvation to those who don't know 
don't understand, misunderstand, or anything else on that spectrum. Work by the Spirit so that we are faithful, not just in seeking godly lives, but also faithful in making Jesus known. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.